often reflects how we perceive things. And, and you know the children do offer different views than us, don't they? Now, I know we think we're pretty smart, and it makes sense to us. But think about how children respond to things and how we respond to God's witness. I had these sent to me about two weeks ago. Here's some contrasts. This is how children think. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? (laughs) Neil. Dear God, in Bible times, did they really talk that fancy? (laughs) Jennifer. Dear God, I think about you sometimes even when I'm not praying. Elliot. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Okay, how many times have we done that? God, okay, you know, I get you answer prayer, but, you know, here's what I've been praying for. How about this one? Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. (laughs) She's honest. I want her on my staff. (laughs) Dear God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I'll show you my new shoes. How many times do we come to church and say, God, look at me? Here's one. Dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money and my chest set. This whole Easter deal. This crucifixion, this resurrection deal. What does it mean for us in the year 2015? Now, for those that are regular attenders here, they know I do this from time to time. And for those that are new, if you want this, you can feel free to grab it as well. My dad gave me a book at the beginning of this week. It's called The Revolution That Changed the World by Dr. David Jeremiah. It's one of his new books. And I read it, and I'm going to do what I normally do is pass it on because a book needs to be read, correct? By more than one person. So who would like this book this morning? Okay, I saw a first hand down here. Come and get it. I got lights in my eyes, so. Now, you remember the rule. You read it on and pass it on. Okay, thank you. True and better. Easter, what does it mean for us in 2015? What difference does it make for those who claim to follow Christ? Now let me ask a question that reflects this question in another way. What kind of church do we want to become? Now that's another way of saying, what kind of follower of Christ do we desire to become? For those that are visiting, what kind of church would you like to be part of? For those who do not attend church except on Easter because the family makes you come. I mean, let's be honest. What kind of church would capture your attention? And we all know that church is not an address. It's not a building. It's not a set of programs. It is people. And we were called and never meant to live in isolation. And this whole diverse unity that God grants us through the power of His Spirit... That is what we are called to live out. So, what does all this have to do with us in 2015? If he is the true and better, if everything that we sang about is true, if everything we heard the choir sing about is true, 
One of the things that we spend an entire lifetime doing is, is closing what I call the knowing-doing gap. Here's what we know Christ to be and how he's called us to be. And yet we live over here and we pray like the one little girl who says, you know, thank you for the little baby brother, but really what I wanted was a puppy. Somehow what we know must find practical expression 24-7 that builds the kingdom of God. Think of it this way. Think about marriage. You can have all the information about marriage. You can have books. You can have seminars. You can have all the right answers. But you ultimately have to ask the question, why are you getting married? And all the research and all the studies they've done tell us this, that the best ones, the ones that survive, actually the ones that thrive more than survive, are the ones who marry the person for who they are. Not for their money, not to get fixed, not what they can do for them. But so often, this divine agenda gets hijacked by our own wills. And if we desire to become the true and better church, we have to love the true and better for who he is, not what he gives us. Now, I am not saying he doesn't give us a lot. He does. But we have to fall in love for who he is, period. I've seen far too many people who limit what God is doing with their expectations. And they come to God with their lists, just like the disciples who were still bent on this whole, let's overthrow Rome and set up our kingdom. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. And they were blind to the point that God had a far greater plan in place. If we do not bridge the gap between knowing the true and better and bringing it down to who we are in our lifestyles, then church becomes nothing more than getting warm bodies and seats rather than engaging our world 24-7. Let me ask it this way. Do we really think that Christ came to earth, lived among us, suffered an incredibly horrible death, even greater was the sin he bore on himself and rose again so that we could just come to church on a Sunday morning and worship the way that we want? Do we really think that's why he came? Oh, there's so much more to life. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the context, Paul's addressing the church. Early in the church's development, I, I know people say all the time, well, I wish we were like the early church. Well, the early church had a whole list of problems early in its development. It was having big relational problems. They were arguing over which preacher they liked the best. They were having doctrinal issues. And the one they started arguing over, believe it or not, was did Christ really come back from the dead? I mean, that was front and center in the first generation of Christians. But here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick the story up at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he did not raise. If it is true, that the de- then the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who fall asleep in Christ have perished. If then, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, it's interesting here, Paul says six things that would be in shambles if Christ did not raise. He is risen. Come on, guys. He is risen. Now, if that is true, Paul's saying, if that's not true, here's the end result. I mean, let's look at the six things. He says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then are preaching in vain. What I'm doing here this morning is empty, futile, it means nothing. It will change nothing, it will transform nothing. Again, in verse 14, he says, your faith is in vain. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's empty. In verse 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, we are found to be misrepresenting God. Literally, he means we are false witnesses. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Not only is it empty, it has no power to it. In verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who've fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ, I mean, they're just gone. There's nothing. In verse 19, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then we out of all people are to be most pitied. Then in verse 20, he reverses the whole paragraph and says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. He is the true and better. Now let me restate those things in a positive way. Here's the first thing he says. Number one, we are forgiven for our sins. It's true and permanent forgiveness. And there's no givebacks. Nobody can come along and say, listen, well, you know, I remember what you did when you were 16 years old. No, it doesn't work that way. They can say it, but it carries no weights. You are not defined by your sin. You are defined by Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, as far as the east is from the west. Now think about that. If you go east in the earth, how far do you go till you hit west? Well, you never do. If you go west, well, you just keep going west. So far, he does remove our transgressions from us. See, there's a reality for everyone. And we can choose God's reality that says you are forgiven, or we can choose our reality which defines people by their sin. So often what keeps us from his forgiveness is our pride. Pride that says, you know, I I really don't need you. Or... You can't remove this from me because, you know, I'm kind of branded for the rest of my life. I hope you hear me this morning. If Christ is the true and better, if Christ has died and rose again, then you can be forgiven. And the only thing that keeps you from being forgiven is asking Christ. Number two, 
He says our faith is well-founded. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is not a definition of faith. It's a description. And he tells us faith is not some blind optimism. It's not manufactured emotions. But there's evidence of people living out the power of God. And he goes on to list these people saying, look at this person, look at this person, look at this person, look at this person. Now we saw a list of a lot of those people in the True and Better video. There's evidence that's lived out in the power of God. And what I love about this whole list is he finally gets down to unnamed people. We don't know their names, but here's what he says in verse 38 of these people. Of whom the world was not worthy. And we have faith in a person, not a circumstance. And after this list of people in faith, in Hebrews 12, he says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there is empirical evidence in the lives of people that indicate the reality of who God is both past and present. And he's asking for us to live it out in the future. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that sets before us. Now, you you know what he says, every weight and sin. We know what sin is. It's in direct violation of who God is. What are weights? Weights are good things. Weights are good things that we turn into idols or we turn into roadblocks that keep us from moving towards God. It's amazing that we can take good things and actually make them detrimental and slow us down. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated. He rose again at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Our faith is well-founded. Number three, if Christ has risen, then what the apostles preach is true and better. Now, culturally, we have lost any appreciation for truth. And that's not something new. It just kind of takes on different models almost every generation. Truth today is subject to interpretation. We've seen that. And redefinition. The reality is that lives and misdirection rule our days. No longer it's what is true, but rather what can be manufactured as true. It's interesting. One of the accusations that has been towards Christians in the church is that we've been accused of shoving our beliefs and morality down the throats of people. And we live in a day where the opposite is true. We confuse acceptance and approval. Anyone who does not approve is subject to hate rhetoric. Look in the news. What has been what I call the mob outrage the last two weeks. Well, it's the governor of Indiana who simply passed a law that was passed and signed into law by President Bill Clinton back in 1993. And he was bringing their state into alignment. But the new tolerance is intolerance for anything Christian. Watching and interviewing a piece of discussion about this subject, at one point, 
the one person asked this other person a very direct question and listened to how they ask it. They finally stopped and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? That was a question of accusation, not like, oh, are you a Christian? And when the person said yes, they said, oh, so you're a bigot, a racist, and hate gays. That was the exact comment of the other person being interviewed. So the question I have, are we ready to suffer for Christ like many are suffering around the world? Another question I have is, why are we surprised by suffering? Didn't Jesus tell us that it would happen? Now here's what has my outrage going. While all this is happening, you heard very, very, very little in the mainstream media about the 148 Christians killed in Garcia University in Kenya. During Holy Week, two Muslim extremists walk in, and they said, are you a Christian? Yes, bang, and they would shoot people. Until they were literally, I guess they had to kill them on sight, until they caught them, 148 people died just for being Christian. But here's what is true. This is what the apostles preach. Jesus died for those who opposed him. Here's what is true. We are called to be followers of Christ to love our neighbors and our enemies. Regardless of the beliefs and lifestyles, we do not hate those who disagree with us. Here is what is true about the gospel. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved by good doctrine. We are saved by a true and better Christ who pulls us out of our self-righteousness. Salvation is a gift from God, period. Here is what is true. The Bible tells us how to live. It has subjects about sex, money, and marriage. It's not busy work. God knows how we were designed. It's a manual saying, listen, here's how you ought to operate to get the most true and better out of your life. Think about a car manual. And it tells you to change the oil. Why? Well, if you don't change the oil, what's going to happen? Eventually down the road, that car will seize. See, we fail to realize the Bible is this manual of the true and better that really gets the best of what we're designed for. Here's the next thing that Paul tells us, that we are to be envied. Think about this for a moment. I mean, it sounds a bit proud, doesn't it? And yet he says in reverse that if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, man, we are to be pitied. But if he has risen, we're to be what? The opposite. We're to be envied. I mean, think about the freedom we have. Think about the forgiveness we have. We are not defined by our sins, our past. The future will someday be be far beyond anything we could dream about. We live with purpose. We live with cause greater than ourselves that we are engaged in. I mean, this is what people are looking for. Christ has risen. If we believe that, we are a people of hope, not despair. You know, I often have conversations with people who criticize this whole heaven-hell thing. And um, I've learned to respond this way. Let's assume that you're right and I'm wrong. 
And whatever your belief is and however you want to define it, what happens to me if I'm wrong? Well, really nothing. I kind of fall right into their category. If they believe there is no afterlife, then I just die, period. If I believe in reincarn- if they believe in reincarnation, well, then I come back as something else and, you know, I, I get smarter the second time around. Uh, if I go to some other world that gradually, like Rob Bell says, we move and progress and eventually somewhere we will get there. But let's reverse that and say that I'm right and you're wrong. What happens? I mean, they lose everything. You know, we don't have to be ashamed to be Christians because we have what people are looking for. Now, we don't do that in an arrogant and and antagonistic way. You know, it's the message that offends, not the messenger. And sometimes we confuse the two. But here's the next principle that he teaches us. Those who fall asleep are alive. Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion where its leader came back from the dead? There is no other. Not in physical, bodily form. That's what makes Christianity unique. And this creates a reality that's for us. The reality is that we have that same privilege. That we too, there's the promise, will arise like Christ did. Now, it's so funny, you know, it talks about the weights and sin that so easily trip us up. What do we do with that good news that Christ is coming back? We argue about how he's going to come back. And then we separate ourselves saying, I I can't believe those are mid-trippers over there. I mean, you know, we're going to separate ourselves. We're going to start another church here because they just don't have the truth. Here's my theory. I think all of us got some part of it wrong. And on the way up, I don't think there's going to be a single person going to be arguing. Amen? It's not like, hey, Jesus, you can't do it now this way because I read in the paper last week and this didn't happen. No. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, one of the things that we live with today is we live in a world of airbrushing and photoshopping. I mean, you know that what you see in magazines is not the real picture of the person. And yet we all try to imitate and be like that, don't we? I think sometimes in our church we like to airbrush and photoshop Jesus. And we make him into what we want him to be. And we airbrush him in our minds and our emotions. We edit tendencies and flaws. And then we unwittingly create the image of Christ that barely resembles the original. And that's what's tragic. Because he is the true and better. Now that video you saw at the very beginning was taken off a talk that Tim Keller gave at the Gospel Coalition one year. Has a lot of good stuff in it, doesn't it? Let's just watch Tim Keller's version of the true and better. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God, to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. 
Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Get that last phrase? The Bible's not about you. It is about the true and the better. It's about Jesus. That true and better is available to every single person here this morning. There's a lot of things that will keep you from everything else. Everything else has a slight delusion to it. But it will keep you from the very thing that you seek. And I want to go back to my original question. What does it mean for Christ to die and rise again for you and me? Here's the analogy. We are all born in a prison cell. It's called sin. Theology-wise, we call that total depravity. You don't need to remember that, but we are born in a prison. The cross and the resurrection, what they do is they open that cell door. And they invite us to walk out and to be free. See, our part is to walk through that door, to accept what Christ has done, to accept that we cannot do that on our own. And we have a choice to live in the cell of our own making or to live free in a world that's been created by God. So you have a choice this morning. If you never accepted Christ and would like to do so, we're going to ask you in a moment just to, to kind of raise your hand and we want to make sure that we make that right this morning. But to everyone else, if you have claimed to walk through that door, then live in the power of his word and his spirits. Don't act like you're back in the cell. Be part of the revolution 24-7. Live by his spirit. The choice is church your way or church his way. I'm going to invite the the brass quartet, I guess, back up. Are they playing again? Yes, they are. 
And we're going to sing in closing. As they do that, I want us to bow our heads. I want to pray for you guys. As I already said, if you're here this morning and you would, and you have not, but would like to make a decision for Christ with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, just kind of slip up your hand. I'm going to pray for you and I'll talk to you afterwards. Is there anyone here this morning? Now, I've been known to have bad eyesight, so if you raised your hand and I didn't see it, please come and talk to me afterwards, okay? And for the rest of us, let's go and live the way Christ designed us to live, amen? Father God, I just pray that you, well, first of all, I want to thank you for what you've done. It's beyond our ability to even comprehend how great, how awesome, you are and what you've done for us, we will not fully understand until we see you face to face. So forgive us for that. Forgive us for how we so often get caught up in our own agendas and our own thoughts and our own desires and we just step aside from the purpose and design that you called us to be. And we miss out on so much. And because we miss out, then our neighbors miss out, our workers miss out, that you've asked us to bless every single day. I pray for all of us, Lord, teach us what it means to live outside the cell. Give us eyes that see you at work in this world. Give us eyes and a heart that sees us as part of that work. Not defined by what we have done, but defined by who you are and what you will do and are doing in us. We thank you for that day. We're going to see you face to face someday. But until then, may we be the revolution you called us to be. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.